This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. I'm Crudy Joshi, the Deputy Editor of Media Week, and today I'm in the Fairfax office with Matthew Drummond, the editor of the AFR magazine. The last time I spoke to you, you are at News Corp editing GQ. What a ride, eh? Uh, hello, Crudy. Yes, um, it's, um, it's uh, very fun working in magazines, and it um, feels terrific to be back at the Financial Review, working on the Financial Review magazine. Now, I'm about to speak about your third issue of the magazine, which is the power issue that a lot of your readers would look forward to. Uh, the power issue is our um, absolute sort of signature issue of the year. It's um, probably the one that gets the most attention, that people talk about the most. Um, it's um, also quite an extraordinary exercise putting it together because not just it's not just the fact that it's these lists of the people who we say are the most powerful people in the country, but we photograph virtually every single one of them. So it's as much an analysis of uh, power in Australian society as a celebration of fantastic portrait photography. So you'd have bigger budgets set, set aside for this issue compared to your other issues throughout the year? This... Um, this chews up a lot of photographic budget, yes. Um, we have to have people flying around the country to make sure that we get everyone. There's, there's almost 30 photographs to take, portrait photographs, um, of some people who are very, very difficult to get time with. Now, I kind of feel lucky because this podcast is going up um, on the day the power issue comes out, but I'm having a look at the unbinded copy here and kind of having a live commentary um, as I go through the list and, you know, question certain people that are in there. So it's almost got, like getting a director's commentary on a movie. Um, just starting off from page one, the list was actually um, established the first power list came out in 2001 on the cover you have Malcolm Turnbull now if I'm correct in thinking you've never had anyone else as number one except the Prime Minister that's correct we have had previous times there have been um, uh, situations where we've put two people on the cover I think uh, one example of that was when Julie Gillard was Prime Minister and um, uh, Tony Abbott was next to her equal with her that came about because the way the votes fell for who was the most powerful person in the country, um, she was only one vote ahead of Tony Abbott. And just to explain the process here, we don't decide ourselves as the Financial Review magazine who are the most powerful people. We get a panel of experts, of esteemed experts in. They come into Fairfax. They're often um, uh, former federal government ministers, former CEOs or chairmen of company, directors, um, people who are very clued in but not necessarily in the centre of things right now so they're free to actually talk quite frankly about what's going on in business, in boardrooms, in Canberra um, and they're the people who decide who goes on the list. So in that year um, when they end up voting um, uh, quite incredibly uh, Tony Abbott was almost seen as more powerful than Julie Gillard so he put them on both um, on the cover. This time we have a gatefold, so we have um, uh, Malcolm Turnbull on the cover, and when you open up the magazine, you will see f out, from behind him will outfold um, uh, Lucy Turnbull. And Lucy Turnbull is number one on the COVID list of your um, thing. Now, you have three lists that go into this, overt, COVID, and cultural. Now, explain the difference between the three and how you decide who goes where. Um, we um, steer the panel to uh, decide who goes where in this way. We talk about overt power being uh, people who exercise power by exercise of the position they have. So if they are the Prime Minister, then the Prime Minister typically is seen as the most powerful person. Um, it's, the, it's, it's the appointment they hold that gives them the power. Um, covert 
are the people who wield influence on those people. Um, we could see them as the puppet masters or people who pull the strings or people who are behind the scenes. Traditionally, it's the chief of staff of the prime minister's office. It's close confidants. Interesting, Lucy Turnbull, for the first time we've ever had a woman as number one on the covert power list. And the power panel talked about how Lucy's influence has grown as Malcolm Turnbull's problems have gotten greater and that he seems to be relying on his uh, wife even more for advice than he was before. And then the third category, of course, is cultural power. And cultural power for us is not um, uh, high arts or even pop culture. It's something a bit broader than that. It's the people who shape how we feel about being Australians, people who help define what it means to be Australia in 2017. And so your overt list is typically um, filled up with politicians and businessmen, I would imagine? This year, um, there are no business leaders on the list, which um, it's all politicians. On 10th space, which you're looking at right now, is Sally McManus, the new head of the ACTU. Um, but everyone else um, on that list is either a um, is either a, a, a minister, the prime minister, or um, the treasurer, or the opposition leader. They're all politicians, yes. We didn't have a business person on the list, which was talked about at the panel quite a lot, We, um, which reflects the fact that this has been a year where, in a way, Canberra and the coalition government has really fallen out of love with business, or perhaps business has fallen out of love with Canberra, when you've got, um, uh, uh, I think the best demonstration of that is the bank tax. Um, the fact that the federal government has levied that tax on banks, um, it's quite surprising that a coalition government would do that. There's a very awkward relationship now um, between parts of the business community and Canberra, and I think the lack of a business person on that overt power list reflects that. You talked. We talked about the, you know, the number one on the overt list, the number one on the covert list, the number one on the culture list is Animal Shines, Carl and Mark Fennessy. Now you're telling me that this is the first time they've ever sat down and you know some let them profile. I mean, let someone profile them. I don't want you to quote me on that, which you sort of are. <laughs> <laughs> but we can't find another profile of Mark and Carl Fennessy. Um, uh, we had – this was the first year, to go back a step, this was the first year we had a separate cultural power panel. Normally we have the one panel of experts who come in and they discuss overt, covert and cultural – for a while, it's been talked about, should we have a separate cultural panel? Because it's really hard to be across everything from politics through to what people, what's trending on YouTube. Um, so this being my first power issue, I said, let's just give this a go and let's create a separate cultural power panel. Um, we decided to have it as a lunch. Uh, we went down to a restaurant, Hubert, which is a fantastic, very theatrical restaurant in Sydney. Um, uh, we had people like Russell Howcroft there from Gruen Transfer, Rachel Griffiths, the actress, um, uh, Lisa Havilah, the CEO of Carriage Works, Gab Trainer, who's on the commission for the AFL. We had about eight people, and it was fascinating. They all sort of came from different um, segments of culture and Australian society, um, but they fit together like a jigsaw. Um, and it was very clear from that conversation, which sort of that lunch, which happened in late July, um, when Ninja, Australia's top Ninja, was in full swing, um, that we needed to put Endemol Shine on there. They had never been on the panel before, on the cultural list before, but Russell Howcroft was estimating that something like 40% of free-to-air primetime television in Australia is coming out of Endemol Shine. They are so successful that networks are pitting their programs against each other. You'll have Ninja Warrior on Channel 9 and MasterChef on Channel 10 in exactly the same time slot. And obviously they've had a very successful year because their year started off with Married at First Sight, which is a longer format, but performed 
extremely well for Channel 9. So um, now in t- thinking about these panels, how do you decide who goes on them? Who, who Ultimately, I guess, who decides who's on the panel? Uh, do I have to say that's me? <laughs> well, it is. That's, that's, well, it's, it's, it's in consultation with um, Michael Stutchbury, the editor-in-chief of the Financial Review, and Paul Bailey, the editor of the Financial Review. But we sort of sit around and work out ourselves who do we think would be a, um, a, a good mix of people with the right sort of complementary backgrounds to go on the panels. So how long does the whole process take about, okay, you know, I'm starting to think about the um, power issue, need the panel set up so they can vote and kind of analyse the landscape right now, and then they come to a vote and you put it into it on, on the pages of the AFR magazine? Uh, the production process for the whole thing, from concept, from organising who goes onto the panel to uh, producing the magazine, would probably be about four months, um, which would be exactly the time that I've been here at the Financial Review magazine. Actually, the first thing I had to do was, um, in starting, was working out um, who would go on the panels. There's two other things, if I can say, also that we've done differently. Just thinking about um, the cultural, the the power issue, rather. This year, um, uh, this year we've partnered with a um, tremendous film company to make uh, two short little videos around the shooting of the portraits of the power issue. Um, um, and separately, we're having an event um, um, in Sydney on the 11th of October for about 100 people to celebrate the issue and we're going to show some of these portraits um, quite large, we'll sort of display them as um, artworks in themselves um, and Peter Dutton will be guest speaking. And so how important I guess in terms of, I'll get back to the list later because I have heaps of questions to ask you about that, but um, talking about the event how important is that as, you know, extending something that's already quite well known but you know, you need to kind of establish more rev- revenue streams I guess to make your returns? We, um, we uh, with something like the power list, which is so well known, um, it seems a shame not to find ways to give it life beyond just the magazine. So um, the event is the first time we've, this event will be the first time we've done an event for the power issue since 2011. Um, and um, also just as exciting for me is the film. Um, Exit Films, uh, the people who've created these two videos for us, one of the directors was a second director on Lion, the um, Academy Award-nominated film. It's basically taking this opportunity that we have. We fly to Canberra to take most of the portraits, the photographs on the overt list, and we do it in one day. So you have all of these people coming in and out of uh, where we're photographing. We did it at the National Portrait Gallery. Um, uh, you've got Matthias Corman coming in. You've got Barnaby Joyce going out. Um, they're working with our photographers. Um, you see a side to them that you don't often see. Um, so to actually go to to go behind the scenes and allow a film crew to just give them sort of carte blanche and say, you tell us what you want to do with this. Um, film crew wanted to interview um, the people on the overt power list about how they feel about power, what power means to them, what advice do they give someone who seeks power, how they describe power to a 10-year-old. Um, and the production of that film, um, the way that's come together is exceptional. It's something that we possibly couldn't have done here at Fairfax. We haven't got those skills to work in filmmaking on that level, um, but it takes the brand into a whole new um, uh, arena. I guess that would then, um, the film would then give the magazine life beyond, you know, when it is in the newspaper, so you'd be kind of milking the whole thing for weeks to come? 
We have, well, not milking it for weeks to come, um, sort of milking it for weeks going into it. Um, so the film will start to be available from, the videos will start to go out on social media channels this, uh, this weekend. Um, we're also doing outdoor advertising for the first time in quite a long time for the Power Issue or for any um, magazine issue um, at Fairfax. Um, they'll start rolling out this week. So we're actually starting to get a bit of a drumbeat around the Power Issue. Um, and already, um, because we've got the sort of um, ads appearing on Facebook, I'm already fielding people just inquiring, is there going to be an event this year and how can they get tickets? <laughs> I guess you're doing a little first with these things. How much did you have to push for? Because you would have needed more money. <laughs> um, wouldn't necessarily say you need more money, but, well, with the firsts, for both the film um, and for the event, we're doing both those things in partnership with one of our advertisers, Jez Lacoutre, the watchmaker. Um, we've partnered with them to create those films. Um, we've partnered with them to put on the event. And they're also supporting our, um, our, the dynamic editions of our watch magazine. So what I think is remarkable or noteworthy about that partnership is um, we're looking to do several things with that brand, but none of them are actually in the printed magazine. They're all extensions of the masthead. Oh, wow, that's interesting. That's a different setup to what you'd normally get with advertisers. Now, I did mention that I'm really fascinated by the um, three different lists that you have here. On the covert list, we found Ray Hadley, radio announcer as well. Um, He's in at number eight, and I would guess he would have a pretty powerful position being one of the most popular Australian radio announcers and kind of an agenda setting, a set of, to a large extent. Why is he on the COVID list? Yeah, that is a very, very good question. Um, and um, there is quite an extraordinary photograph, which you're listening to this, you unfortunately can't see, but I really encourage you to try and find it on the web of uh, Ray Hadley. He really brought it to that photo shoot. Um, he's on the covert list along with other what we call right-wing media, um, members of the right-wing media. So in there we would have obviously Alan Jones, we talk about um, Sky, we um, talk about Peter Credlin. Um, we talk about the people who are speaking to not just the public but also speaking in a very direct way to the conservative wing of the coalition. There's nothing covert at all about Ray Hadley or Peter Credlin or Alan Jones, of course, and how they operate. But their power, and this is the little distinction, the wrinkle in the power issue, uh, the, the, the power lists, the way they exercise power is of influencing the people who have power uh, rather than the influence themselves. Ray Hadley sits on top um, before Alan Jones, actually. Some people yeah, with sort of in the same category. We sort of put them together as um, uh, Ray Hadley, Alan Jones, and other right-wing media in, um, in, 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 in together. And also, they're in number eight, and in nine um, is Paul Oosting from GetUp, um, which reflects the sort of, um, uh, sort of, I guess, the mirror of the right-wing media in a way that the people in um, organisations like GetUp are very, very good at speaking to the far left um, and perhaps pulling the attention of politicians just like the attention of politicians on the right has been pulled towards the right um, um, through that right-wing media. The same thing is possibly happening on the left through the effect of get-up. Now, cultural list is also another one that's fascinating me. Last year, number one was Waleed Ali, but he's kind of slipped, uh, slipped down to number four, which is still a remarkable position to be in, and you're still in the top five amongst everything and everyone else. Well, look at I mean, look at the um, look at the uh, plastic bags this year. Um, um, uh, Walid Ali started a 
campaign around banning plastic bags and uh, a few months later Coles and Woolworths and I think Harris Farm Market as well have followed and said they will get rid of single-use plastic bags. It's just another demonstration of the actual power that he has that goes beyond just being a commentator but actually making things happen in Australian society. Um, the panel talked about how often, quite often, he is one of the only voices um, as the most prominent Muslim. He's one of the few people who actually talk about some um, so, some issues. Um, he's still um, got a very unique brand in the Australian media. Now you've got the Murdochs at number three. Um, obviously, they was fascinating. Um, I, I must say that um, we go to elaborate lengths to get portrait photographs taken of every single person on the list, and we know there are some people who will never pose for a photograph and um, uh, the Murdoch family is one of them. Uh, unfortunately, that's a shame. I'd like to change that. Um, so when we went into that lunch at Restaurant Hubert with the Cultural Power Panel, we talked about um, what is the short list of um, uh, people that we'll consider for, discuss- for discussing over lunch. And there was a debate about um, how the Murdochs had to be discussed because to ignore them isn't, is, is, to, is sort of, well, I think it was um, Rachel Griffiths who said to ignore the Murdochs is willful aspirationalism at best. Um, uh, they are so omnipresent in Australian media um, uh, through print, through television, through Sky, through Endemol Shine, which is also um, a Murdoch property as well, uh, through production companies, through film, through content that comes out of the west coast of the US and is transmitted to Australia from there. Um, they are almost like the sort of water table of Australian culture. They are sort of everywhere um, necessary for sustaining life in some places, um, invisible but omnipresent. So they are number three, um, which I think is a pretty good spot. Do you reckon you would have struggled to get a photo of them seeing that you work for a competing <laughs> publisher? I don't think um, – yeah, it, look, it's not, it's not easy to get. We're, we're not um, the first thing um, – we're, we're, we're not the first publication on their um, list of publications to post for. <laughs> and um, now – I would like to obviously change that because if there's one profile that you would really love to do in the Financial Review magazine, it would be Rupert Murdoch. So I guess this is going to be one of your goals as, as your time as the editor of it. That would be extraordinary if we could do that. Um, num- now we talked about number four. Number five, YouTube stars, Raka Raka. I think they're from Adelaide, if I'm correct. They're from a suburb called Puraka, yeah. That's why, and they're twins, hence the name Raka Raka. Mm. And it's, it's amazing to see um, YouTube YouTubers, I guess, on the same list as, you know, the likes of Murdoch and Walid Ali, but I guess they are, YouTubers are kind of becoming the new generation of celebrities. That's why I think... Uh, one of the we will definitely do a separate cultural power panel next year as well because there was possibly a real insight to having these people around the table um, uh, about how culture is changing. They talked a lot about the sort of mainstayers and the, the means of cultural production and the people who own the channels or own the distribution mechanisms. And they also talked about, the panel talked about the outliers and the people who are doing something totally new, um, who develop our palate for new tastes and for new quiz- cultural types of cuisine and new things that we want to eat that we didn't realise we wanted to eat before. Um, uh, the Rakarakas um, uh, from Paraka in uh, Adelaide, um, they were identified by Variety magazine, the um, sort of the publication from um, you know, a mainstay in Hollywood. They were, they were identified in the US um, as one of the 10 YouTube acts to watch or rather the 10 internet acts to watch, are people who they say are changing the rules of celebrity and cultural formation um, around the world. Um, they picked up these two guys from Adelaide. So these guys are on the list 
in large part because of themselves. Um, they've got millions of people following their YouTube channel. They've just signed a film deal. Um, uh, they're going into cinemas. Um, they've been identified by Variety magazine. But they also are the standard bearers for this huge trend of um, YouTube stars. And as Russell Howcroft makes the point um, in the magazine, um, if you're under 25, you're probably watching your main um, distribution. You, the, the, the main platform that you're watching is YouTube. I love that when I was going through the magazine earlier before I hit record on this um, voice recorder, you almost kind of seem offended by the fact that I didn't tell, ask you about Raka Raka where I had it in my mind. Well, it's very difficult for the listener to um, understand that because they're not looking at the um, rather extraordinary image of the two of them because what the Raka Rackers do is they create homemade slasher films. Um, so the photo has them in their white T-shirts, um, guns in their hands, um, a knife to one of their tongues, and they're completely splattered in blood, which interestingly is made from chocolate ice cream sauce with red food dye. Amazing. Fun fact. Um, Nicole Kidman's had a great year. So, you know, obviously uh, I'd be amazed not to see her on this list. She's never been on a list before. Again, this was the thing about the um, effect of having the uh, the specialists from um, from uh, the cultural sector meeting together. There was a lot of discussion about Blossom, um, her film company, and the fact that um, if Nicole reads a book um, and uh, likes it, likes it and options it, it tends to get made. Obviously, the big, one of the big stories for Nicole this year is Big Little Lies, the Leanne mm. Moriarty uh, book, um, that um, the TV series that's uh, for which um, Nicole won the Emmy. Um, but there are a lot of other projects uh, like that. That um, that wasn't through Blossom, but there are projects that Nicole is backing. She was the executive producer of that with Reese Witherspoon. Um, so it's sort of her influence almost behind the scenes in film and TV content production um, that is the reason why she's on that list. Another person who I said was timely is Rebel Wilson. How much was that around the Bauer? Um, how much of that was based on the Bauer debacle, or how did you come to that position? She's at number nine. Um, I think it was mostly about the um, the uh, the court case against Bauer Media. The panel met after the court case, but before the um, the damages of from memory, it was four point five million dollars was awarded. Um, those damages were awarded. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about. Um, she was a girl who had um, a woman who has done her own thing. She's a plus size actress. She's um, sort of got a different type of. She's 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 a different type of character um, in a phenomenally successful film franchise, Pitch Perfect. I think the third film is coming out this year. It's one of those creeper films that, in terms of the first one, just more and more people started talking about and it's, I think it's box office 400 million now across the franchise. Um, she's a key part of that series and then this court case came along where she was, um, well, the way the judge found it, she was just torn down mercilessly by um, uh, a media, um, uh, by Women's Day magazine um, where the journalist hadn't made any effort to check facts. Um, Rebel says that this, she thinks the story came about from um, someone she knew at school who was basically now talking to the journalist and picking on her, but in a really awful way, um, where it's not just high school bullying, but actually affecting her, 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 her career. Um, and um, as the panel talked about, the whole country was sort of rooting for her, and people around the world were rooting for her. Shock jocks were talking about how incredible Rebel Wilson was. They really wanted her to win, and um, man, did she win. <laughs> 
I, I did mention earlier, now you started about four months or so ago, like you mentioned. Third issue in was the parish. How much pressure was on that? Because you know that there is such a big audience for it. Um, yes, there is a lot of pressure on it. It was the, it's the, also, there's two things going on. You're organizing the power issue, the, um, the panel, um, at the same time as you're trying to work on your first issue. So it was a little bit stressy. I think we've done a reasonable job. Um, one of the stories that I'm most proud of is, um, the profile of Mike Baird. I've been trying to get a profile of Mike Baird since I was working um, as the editor of AFR Weekend, the Saturday edition of the Financial Review. I was trying to get Mike Baird um, uh, when he was Treasurer, then as Premier. I was trying to get him when he was Premier of New South Wales when I was working at GQ magazine. And now he's left politics and he's gone to NAB. And I'm so happy that we managed to get the first proper sit-down interview with him since leaving politics. Um, He did one uh, sort of um, uh, press event beforehand. But this is the first time where I feel like someone actually got a real chance to ask him, why did you actually leave politics? You said it was because your family, but what specifically? And in this story, he opens up about the social media bullying that his daughters received, largely because of the uh, lockout laws in New South Wales. And the uh, Im- impact of that, he says that he didn't actually realise at the time how bad it was. It was sort of kept a bit from him. But um, it's something that he actually opens up as being quite... You get a sense of the the burden of um, what it's like being in public office now when social media can reach your kids. So what was that feeling like? So I, so you were last walking the Fairfax office in 2015 when you were the editor of the AFR Weekend. I think you were that you held that position for two years. Correct. So in that in that case, so you've been chasing this interview with Mike Baird for more than four years. I think so. Yes, that would be right. I have been talk, trying to get Mike Baird to sit down and do a proper interview with us for four years, and his career has changed quite a bit um, uh, since we first started that. But in a way, what better publication than Financial Review magazine for um, for him to do it in? Because for some people, he would be less interesting that he's left politics and is now in the senior ranks of National Australia Bank. But for us, it's just as interesting because what our difference is as a magazine is we're a magazine about business and politics and the arts, but we look at business leaders that are just as interesting to us as leaders in the artistic field or as politicians. So it's a perfect place for him to be profiled. So it wasn't an easy sell to get that profile, but I really did feel like this was the place for him to sit down and do a proper interview. So when he did finally say yes, or one of your journalists did come up to you and say, okay, we've got this Mike Baird interview, this is when I'm doing it, did you have violence playing in your mind? Um, I can tell you where I was. I was at um, the National Portrait Gallery in Canberra, um, uh, still um, uh, helping with the photographs of the people for the power list. Um, And um, uh, it was then that we sort of locked this into place. Um, And um, that was a very happy drive home from Canberra. So now that you've got Mike Baird out of the way, one um, you know interview that you aspired to, who's the next? We've got a pretty fantastic interview that's going to be coming out in our design issue. This is the one that comes directly after the power issue. Again, this is someone who I've been probably chasing for three years, um, uh, someone overseas, someone who's got a story that I think people don't really know about. There's an Australian connection to it, but when you hear about it, you sort of can't almost believe it. It seemed a little bit too um, ridiculous. Um, uh, it's one of those sort of moonshot stories um, that it's... Um, 
again, one of those ones that I've been chasing for years. And one of the first things I did when I came in the door as editor of Financial Review magazine was I made my same pitch to all the same people I've been trying to get interview profiles with for years. And this person was one of them. And um, it was quite extraordinary when um, his PR person wrote back and said, actually, we might be interested in doing this. I think that's two things. Part of it's just luck and that now this person is in a stage of their business that they're happy to talk about it a lot more than they were before. Um, And secondly, I think it's the power of the Financial Review magazine. If you're doing something incredible in business um, um, and you want the world to know about it, we provide a place where we can do beautiful long-form journalism, um, impactful photography, glossy paper, a premium environment for high net worth individuals. Um, We can lavish it with incredible art direction and we can make a beautiful product but we still have all the intellect and the business now of the financial review masthead so it's a good opportunity for people to um to for people who've got something who are from business something incredible to share we provide a good platform for that so it's possibly that it was the masthead but it was also a matter of timing in case you've scrolled through right through the podcast, uh, again, this is a Media Week podcast. I'm in the Fairfax office with Matthew Drummond, who's the editor of the AFR magazine. Now, Matthew, just to focus a little bit more on you, um, you, you've walked the offices of Fairfax before as the weekend editor, the senior uh, reporter, a columnist. Was it so different coming back? Did it feel at all different? Um, it felt very, very similar. Things have changed a little bit at Fairfax. I was away for two years. Um, there's um, a different management structure in place across Metropolitan Publishing, which is the division that the Financial Review is in. Um, uh, there have been the redundancies that everyone knows about. Um, there were, um, the place has got fewer people um, than it did before. There's a different energy in the place. Um, I feel like there's a very clear sense of direction um, in terms of the strategy of the mastheads that perhaps there um, wasn't before. Um, of course, we've when I was working here last time, Fairfax, it was in 2015, and Fairfax was in that sort of debate around what do we do with print? Um, and there was much speculation about when Fairfax would turn print off, um, um, how it would turn print off. Whereas now, coming back, there is absolutely no talk about turning off print at Fairfax. Um, in fact, the mantra seems to be more of something of like, of we respect print and we grow digital. Um, so there seems to have been a sort of Quite that, that in one way feels very different about Fairfax now in 2017 than it did years ago. Your boss, Fairfax um, CEO Greg Highwoods, never shied away from saying that he wants to make the company digital first and that is the way of the future. Um, how, how does that um, impact you in terms of your role and the title that you're looking after? Yeah, it comes, it comes back to that principle of um, respecting print but growing digital so looking for the opportunities like we spoke earlier where we've partnered with one of our clients Jeja Lakutra to do um, an event to uh, take um, uh, ads in our dynamic edition of our watch supplements um, and also to create film content um, that's done in partnership with them um, but it uses the assets we have in our case the fact that we get to photograph the most powerful people in the country um, and create content around that so we would be the focus for us I think for the Financial Review magazine, 
for 2018 is to find ways to grow the brand digitally. Um, there'll be an opportunity for us early next year when a new um, uh, design for the Financial Review website will come into place. And we're working now um, on what the specifically the luxury component of that website should look like um, and how we uh, better leverage it such that we get the support that we get, extraordinary support that we get from advertisers in print. How do we pull that into our digital strategy? And so I guess video, you did mention that it was the first thing that you did the video for the power issue. Is that going to be more of an occurrence moving forward? You, will we see more videos coming from your photo shoots and things like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. In small, in very, very small ways, making sure that we do um, uh, just lo-fi behind the scenes footage from a fashion shoot that's shot on an iPhone because we know that it's the most engaging content on our Instagram channel right through to working with um, uh, very talented filmmakers who um, can take, who actually can take the opportunities we have and do something extraordinary with it that we can't do and to do that in partnership with advertisers. For, because for me, um, as a person who loves magazines, if I think about the impact of a cover, a really extraordinary cover of a magazine and what is, what is that, what does that look like digitally for me, that is, that is an amazing one-minute video. Mm. Now, um, speaking about events as well, you did mention that's one of the first things you're doing with this. Is that, again, more of a thing that your readers and stuff can expect from you? Uh, we've, we've been doing quite a lot of events at the Financial Review magazine. So that side of the business was humming along well before I started. Um, there was, uh, under the old editor, the previous editor, Katrina Strickland, they had a big event with Porsche. When I arrived, um, uh, we had two events to celebrate um, our 10 years of our watch supplement. We're the first uh, masthead in Australia to cover uh, the business of watches and to cover uh, watches as a business, as a business category. Um, we had events in Sydney and Melbourne. We've also done an event with Bulgari. Um, we've got the event coming up with Jeje Lakoutra for Power. Um, we would be um, uh, expecting to do more of those kind of events in 2018, absolutely. Now, speaking about that break time two years when you weren't at Fairfax, you were at GQ, and at that time you mentioned that you wanted to bring in a little bit of politics to the magazine. How do you reckon you went with that? Um, we, uh, we had some awesome times at GQ with, um, with, with politics. We did quite a few um, uh, political people in the magazine. GQ actually does quite a lot of politics. Um, when I was there, we had Nick Xenophon um, in the magazine. We also had... Quite famously, Richard Di Natale, um, who we dressed in that um, very stylish um, Hugo Boss turtleneck um, uh, and um, d profiled him in the GQ&A section where we also got an interesting um, angle out of him where he talked about he could one day imagine going into coalition, into government with the coalition, not just Labor. Um, he sort of speculated that in the context of never say never and he wasn't actively considering it, but it did cause a bit of a kerfuffle with the Greens membership. Um, and that was a really, really tremendous example of GQ, I think, um, uh, taking its 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 fashion content and creating a sort of fashion moment around a, a, a well-known Australian identity, coupling it with a great piece of analysis and a good interview, um, and it, it it got a lot of attention for the brand. You're creating buzz with the work that you did back at GQ, but when you left in like about eight months or something, it created a lot of reasons about you know why did he leave? What happened there? What did happen there? What happened? Um, magazines are very personal things. Um, magazines um, uh, all have their own sort of unique personalities, um, and it's critical for the editor to sort of be completely simpatico with that personality. Um, GQ is an amazing product. Um, it's an extraordinary brand, and it's got a great team. Um, but having been there for um, eight months, I sort of realised it wasn't really my brand. It wasn't really my product. It wasn't the one that I was... Um, 
probably the best person uh, to drive forward. So reluctantly, um, I had to make a decision to leave. Um, it wasn't easy, um, but I learned a lot from the experience. Um, after GQ, I went to the Sydney Opera House. And, and what were you doing there? Uh, well, there I was working in marketing. I decided to sort of leave media for a little bit. Um, having learned quite a lot at GQ, uh, it's very good to sort of get out and about. Um, um, uh, I, having been at Fairfax for 10 years, um, I decided what I really needed to pick up was digital marketing skills. Um, I sort of became a little bit obsessed with um, with Instagram, Facebook, um, and actually understanding how those distribution mechanisms work and how brands like the Sydney Opera House, which is an incredible brand, um, how they use those channels um, from a marketing perspective. So I was part of the marketing team, working with the communications team, um, but part of marketing specifically working on their new website. Um, Sydney Opera House worked with uh, Razorfish and Adobe to create a whole new website. I helped with the, um, I was one of the people at the Opera House who helped design it um, and also do the editorial strategy for it such that the Opera House now has its own blog and is doing its own content marketing. You got into marketing. What did you take away from that? What would you say was one of the biggest surprising learnings? It's not every day that you see a journal become a marketer. Um, marketing is um, extremely powerful. What's the, the biggest takeaway you take from marketing? There is a rigor to marketing that you possibly don't have in journalism and you wouldn't have in a, many communications roles. Um, there's, uh, it's sort of like a mathematical, um, uh, there's a lot of mathematical equations that you're sort of getting around, not literally, but you know, marketers will always talk about what is their objective, segmenting their audience, how do they measure success. Um, there's a process, a very methodical process to go through. Um, whereas in media, you tend to just spitball ideas around and say, how about we do this or how about we do that? Whereas marketers will say, well, what's the objective you're trying to achieve? Um, so perhaps that discipline was a bit of a, not a shock, but just something that was fascinating to actually see what that looks like. So do you have more of a uh, formulated approach to your work now as a journalist? Absolutely. Actually, yes, that is absolutely true. Far more. And also I'm on all sorts of things like Trello boards and, <laughs> and, 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 and just sort of um, I know what a Gantt chart is, which if you're listening to this, you know what it is. I'm really sorry for you, but I've done Gantt charts, just sort of project management tools. I think um, that was a very, very useful experience. Are you now in love with Gantt charts? No, I'm not in love with Gantt charts. <laughs> but I can see, uh, but you know what I am in love with? If we do have a big project that's coming up at the Financial Review magazine and I can see someone who's working on it and I can see they've got a Gantt chart, I love them. <laughs> Jesus Christ, things that actually, you know, amuse you is amazing. Matthew, thank you so much for your time. That was great speaking to you and all the best with the power issue and your focus ahead. Thank you very much. You are listening to the Media Week podcast. Find us online at mediaweek.com.au. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Media Week AUS.